Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Welcome to the 100th episode of Wheels Off. I can't believe we're here. I started recording these episodes in November of 2018, these conversations. I didn't know if I wanted to do a podcast or not, if I would be able to do it. I didn't know if it's something that would feel fulfilling to me. I didn't know if it was something that would feel rewarding. It has been so fulfilling and so rewarding having these conversations over the last three years now. My first ever guest was Roseanne Cash. She is someone with whom I've written songs and recorded. It's sort of the elephant in the room sometimes that I've spent 28 years in a band named after a song that her father made famous, Johnny Cash being a big hero of mine. But he's just her dad, so it's not like I ever grill her about that. She is an inspiration to me, to a lot of people. The way she has lived her creative life and personal life, from what I know of it as well, but her creative life, her public life, is so deep. The music that she makes, the writing that she releases into the world, be it her memoir or her essays, she is living an examined life. She is living a grateful life. All of that comes through, not just in the first ever episode of Wheels Off, wherein I got to interview Roseanne Cash, but in this, the 100th episode of Wheels Off, where we come back together, we talk a little bit about what I've learned over the last 100 episodes, we talk about surviving the pandemic, we talk about her most recent single, The Killing Fields, and the fact that the proceeds benefit the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement and the Equal Justice Initiative and coming to the table, these, these great causes that she gets behind. We talk about uncomfortable things and the fact that talking about uncomfortable things is important. And that's one thing I've really learned over these last three years of creating this Wheels Off series of conversations. She's the ultimate guest for this conversation and i'm so grateful that she was willing to rejoin me for the 100th episode please welcome to wheels off roseanne cash welcome back to wheels off roseanne cash thank you so much for joining me again how can i resist coming back for your 100th episode well it, it was a, a November of 2018, when you and I sat down for my very first episode, and I can't even believe it's almost three years. I can't either. You're just, you're like a podcast rock star, aren't you? 
<laughs> you're actually both things. <laughs> I learned in the just the, in the course of our interview the first time around, I learned so much when I sat down with you before I had pages and pages of questions. And I realized I really only need four questions because they were the ones when you and I talked that, that, that gave me the most. Well, also, you're really good at having conversations. And if you start with one question, it leads to other stuff. And I like talking to you. Yeah, well, I've, I've missed you. And so this is a nice way to at least virtually check back in. Um, so I, I kind of got a lot of these answers beforehand. But so you and I both have, um, we've had to survive as, as everyone else in, on the planet, this pandemic. But um, you know, we've had to be artists and creative people in the midst of it. And I wonder how, how you have coped with it. What's been your, um, your secret to making it through this thing? Well, A, I was really fortunate. You know, I wasn't struggling. I didn't lose my job. You know what I mean? I actually was kind of burnt out from traveling. So just to be in my own kitchen and make my own coffee and wander around my house. And I started sleeping a lot more. And uh, John and I were quarantined with Jake, our son, who the last half of his junior year, last quarter of his junior year, he couldn't go back to school and through that summer. So he was not totally happy. It was 21 years old being with his parents for months and months, but I was really happy he was here. It was much less stressful for me. And um, I started writing more. I wrote an essay for The Atlantic right at the beginning of the pandemic. I wrote a couple songs. I wrote a few songs. I wrote two songs with Matt Berninger from The National. By, and he and I have never laid eyes on each other in person, but we wrote remotely. We did, as I know you did too, a ton of these video performances because, you know, venues were doing uh, benefits to try to stay open and healthcare workers. And uh, I even did one for Carnegie Hall. They wanted like a real show. So we were busy. It's not like we weren't doing stuff. And at first I thought, you know, this performing in a vacuum when you couldn't really feel the audience would, it was a little disconcerting and there wasn't that kind of chemical connection you get when it's live. And then I started getting messages like how much people appreciated it. They were locked in. They desperately needed it. And it was humbling. And I'm sure you found the same thing. Yes, I have. I, I met uh, 275 uh, online shows since the pandemic started. What? Yeah. I've, most, Are you kidding? Yeah. About four a week for, I'm down to two a week now because it's, the demand oh. is less and it's just, it, it's unsustainable that pace. Oh, so, right. That's amazing. I'm a total <laughs> amateur compared to that. I mean, we did, we did a lot, but not like that. Well, it's, it, I mean, it's that thing where, you know, I, I don't know what else to do. Right. And I've got these kids, you know, that are still in the house and I got to feed them and make sure they're okay. So it's been, it was driven by necessity, but it's funny too, because you, you talk about how we feed as performers off of the audience and, and the, mm. um, what we get from them. And I've always found that there's 
like a narrative we have to sort of tell ourselves as we're walking out onto the stage. And in fact, you and I discussed this before. One thing you brought up in our first interview that I think about all the time that comes up a lot with the subsequent 99 guests is um, the idea of um, success guilt. Like, and, and, and I think part of that sometimes can be when you walk out onto a stage and you think, why are they all here looking at me? And they all spent all this money and got babysitters and did all this stuff. But you have to tell yourself this story of, of why you deserve it and why you're meant to be there. And yeah, that that's interesting about um, success guilt. I had to change the narrative. I had a narrative in the beginning of my career that is very different than the narrative I have now. And now it's much more about being of service. Like they're not here to judge me. They're not even here like to figure me out in any way or to, they're there to experience their own lives and their own feelings and the power of music. And I mean, we're conduits for that, aren't we? And uh, it's bigger than us. If it was just me and I had to come up with some kind of transformative experience for people, I, that would be paralyzing. <laughs> I have to, to put, I mean, it is my narrative. I don't know what narrative other people have, but to put myself in the service of something else, to find where the audience is, try to meet them on their terms, sing to the back corners, you know, touch every part of it let myself make mistakes and not dismantle myself in the moment because I did, you know, it's, it's uh, tricky. <laughs> and, and when you're sitting in front of a, a high def camera or, or you yeah. know, one of these great Apogee condenser mics product plug, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a, it's a different story that you have to tell yourself. You have to remind yourself that there's an ethernet cable that shoots a signal, bounces off a satellite, but like you're saying, the messages you got, it is going to connect with someone, maybe a lot of people. And it's and you are doing a service despite how silly you feel, right? Well, also, I mean, on the most basic level, just having a conversation with you is lovely and a gift. And I'm grateful to do that. And then in another way, I mean, the one thing I've learned growing older is you can never predict or control what other people are going to think about you. So don't waste your time doing it, you know? you end up being a screen. Like people, they project their agenda on you. It's fine. I just, I got to let it bounce off if it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that. Um, so I wonder, I wonder also if um, that changed. Like, so you talk about early in your career, you, you felt sort of the weight of your own, um, I don't know, the eyes on you. Uh, um, if, and then as you've gone on, you've become someone who's more of service, which is, again, something that comes up a lot in these conversations. A hundred in, I've noticed all these really incredible threads. So many of them go back to your and I first conversation we had. But service is one that's, that comes up over and over again and really resonates really? with me. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear that. In fact, I just spoke with Dan and Claudia Zanes. Oh, know sure. You. I know Dan and Claudia. Yeah. Sure. Um, I think they, their uh, interview might not air until after this one, but we spoke yesterday and he brought up the idea of being of service. And he talked about his years of struggle, um, you know, with drinking and becoming sober. And then just now how great it feels 
And it's not, and the way he described it was really moving to me. It's not like it's an obligation. It's like it's a gift to get to be of service. Yeah. And he certainly is to families and children, especially, you know, I, I got to sing on one of those records, one of the children's records. And he's so, I, I find that there are some people who do something like that and they kind of resent it, you know, it's like, it's beneath them in a way. It's not the real stuff. And Dan and Claudia are just full throated. Like you said, this is a gift. I'm so lucky. I love these children, these families. It's so beautiful. It's funny. They've got a, they've got a really beautiful new record that's just out. And um, so much of it was inspired by uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and sort of this movement towards, you know, a, hopefully towards racial justice and social justice. And to hear him talk about um, at, you know, in this later, in his later life, in his later adult life, coming into this um, movement of anti-racism. Like, I love the idea of being like aggressively and intentionally anti-racist. And to hear him describe it was pretty revelatory for me. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I had, um, as a lot of us did, a revelation too during the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, and by the way, my daughter has a book called Little Anti-Racist for her babies. So cute. Um, and, you know, I think we were all shaken to the core, those of us who've lived under this veil of white privilege for our entire lives and kind of thought we weren't racist and we understood. And no, we did not understand. We did not understand our own privilege even. And it was really, really humbling for me. And I wrote a song called The Killing Fields that summer about lynchings in Arkansas, about my own Southern history, about coming, about a reckoning with what chains and threads you cut to the past in your own ancestry. And um, it was, it was kind of a revolutionary soul experience for me to write that song. It was, you know, an exorcism of something. And um, we put it out as a single with this song John and I wrote called Crawl Into the Promised Land. And I wanted to find an organization in Arkansas that the money could go to from the sale of the single. So I found this organization, the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. And I met them, grassroots movement, the sweetest people in the world. And they documented they document lynchings in Arkansas back to the 19th century. And part of their mission is to bring, they have this thing called coming to the table where they bring the descendants of the victims and the descendants of the perpetrators together for a conversation. Now that is next level kind of healing. It's so powerful. So these people, I love them. I just talked to them again the other day. And that in itself was like this, a, a transformative experience to like the real world. It wasn't just an idea, you know, like, oh, now I'm so evolved and I understand this, but to talk to them and to see this man Kwame with this beautiful spirit, loving spirit, whose uncle had been lynched, you know, 
and that he had to spend 10 years getting over the bitterness of that. And look what he did with himself. You know, that it was so inspiring. I could talk more about this, but yeah, it deeply affected me too. God, that's incredible. And, and as you started talking, I was thinking about the ways that art does a thing that I think we all should do in life and in relationships where, where when there's something that seems uncomfortable and we want to move away from it to move towards it instead. And, um, you know, I just even today going out with my wife, Erica, and having lunch and there was a parenting thing that she brought up. And my initial reaction was, oh, God, do we have to talk about it? And I had to make myself like lean into this thing and talk about it. And and I was so glad that I did. But then, you know, when you, when you take it to the point where you're talking about generational wrongs and being confronted like that, I just think it's incredible. I, I know I I have never talked about it publicly, but my family on both sides were large slave owners. And Ditto. Yeah. Same. It's, I mean, how is it something that you could ever even bring up? It's, there's so much shame connected to it. Yeah. Uh, And don't you wish you could time travel and go back and say, this is so wrong. mm -hmm. You can't, you have to change. This has to be done. But in a way, Rhett, I think that, like you said, moving into the pain of that, acknowledging it, um, not taking personal responsibility, but kind of an ancestral acceptance of it and then cutting the chain. That's powerful. That is time travel. And then doing what kind of reparation and reconciliation you can in the present in your own life, right? Yeah. I love what you did with the killing fields. I think that's 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 what we're talking about, where you lean into a hard thing. Yeah. How did it's that feel? Buddhist. It's, yeah. it's a very I mean, I'm a terrible Buddhist, although that's the one religion I am drawn to, but I'm a really bad Buddhist. <laughs> but yeah, writing the song, I I wrote it, you know, Elvis Costello and I are are close friends and we exchange a lot of music before we release it you know and get feedback and so i sent him the killing fields right after it was done and four minutes later my phone rang it's like he didn't text me back he didn't email me back and he he said this is next level stuff this this is a whole different world and i felt it red i'm not saying that oh it's my greatest song i ever wrote but it was um for me alone a profound acknowledgement of ancestral trauma and moving on and not being who we were we meaning my and i'm going back past my dad because he broke the chain himself but i think it's up to me to break it more and then my children to go further do you know what i mean yeah. Yeah, it's almost like one one acknowledgement, one even one lifetime of service towards making a change can't be enough, you know. So it's no. it's great that you're doing it and your kids are doing it, who I think the world of as well. You've done a great job. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't do anything. These kids came in who they are, you know. <laughs> um Another thing that's come up in the in the 99 subsequent episodes since our last uh, wheels off was is the idea of where does it come from? Like where does 
where does the song come from? Where does the album come from? And the acknowledgement that when the impetus for the thing is calculated, when it's trying to make a successful, quote, and, and not successful in that it's a good piece of art, but like making money, when the emphasis is to try and pull one over on the buying public or whatever, how, how not only does it not work, but it backfires tremendously. You know, like the thing that you make just smells rotten. And, and so like, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm making a new solo record right now. And the record label sent me back in for more songs. We need whatever words they use to basically say a hit. Right. And so then I'm like, well, how do you make a hit? And I'm thinking, and the thing that I, the one thing that I made was so gross and so not me, it, it won't, <laughs> it won't be used. And then the next day we did something like, oh, you know, I wish we could just do something that felt good. That thing was better than anything else. Of course it was. <laughs> but I guess my point is that when you take to the next step and do something like you've done with the killing fields, where not only are you not trying to calculate what would be saleable or whatever, you're trying to do something that really has intrinsic meaning and is of service to the world. Like that's got to be the polar opposite of calculation. Right. But you also have to be willing to um, completely accept the fact that it may get five airplays on the radio, that it's not commercial. I always tell myself this will find the right people, the, the people who need it, whether that's 50 or 50,000, you know, I mean, the killing fields is not commercial in any sense, but I know it's, it's meaningful to me. And from what I've heard, it's meaningful to some other people. So that is in the world, you know, I like, I think it was Martha Graham, and I may have told you this before, who said, it doesn't matter what you think of your own work, it matters that you put it in the world, right? And I, I said last night to someone, I, I just want to get to the end of my life and say that what I had inside me, I have put outside me in my life and something of meaning and beauty, you know, not something poisonous, but something that was creative and artful and dark and elegant and whatever it was, you know? Um, but that thing about trying to chase the commercial um, golden apple, it just doesn't work. It never works. I mean, I can't say it never works. I'm sure somebody, I'm sure there are songwriters who are so adept at that, who have their finger on the pulse of whatever the market needs and can do it. But for me and you, that would be a hollow feeling, wouldn't it? It, it is, because I, I, it's not something I try to do often, but having recently gone down that road, it, it is. And it, it makes you question why you're even doing any of it. And that's and that's too bad because having devoted my life to this, having you know seen the work that you've done, there's intrinsic value. We're giving a gift to the universe uh, that the universe has given to us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I'm completely aware how fortunate I am and that I have this and that you know the the weird little outsider kid I was who wanted to create so badly and didn't have the skills and needed a community but didn't know how to find it that here I am in my life developed the skills I can create and I have a community of which you are part Woo! <laughs> um, 
Early in the pandemic, the piece that you wrote for The Atlantic was so beautiful. I mean, of course, because you're a very gifted writer, but it, it to me, um, it it spoke to me personally, just because you were describing um, the kind of life that I had been living and had sort of had to say goodbye to. But so that, that came uh, out really early on in the pandemic. I'm mm-hmm. wondering, like, what your experience since then has been, if you were to write sort of a postscript to that piece, how are you feeling now about where you were when you wrote that? Well, so the piece was called, I will miss what I wanted to lose. And it was about uh, getting off the road and being in lockdown. And the, to be honest, the relief I felt of getting off the road, you know, and there was this one scene that, crystallized it for me that I wrote about in the article where I had found myself in a parking garage in Reno at midnight dragging my bag, excuse me, and I just stopped and I said out loud, I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, John was in front of me and my tour manager. They didn't even turn around. I said it loud enough for them to hear it. They didn't even turn around. They just kept going. Like, yeah, you know, whatever. And you know the you know that mindset of just like you just do it, do it, do it. Doesn't matter how much sleep you didn't get, doesn't matter if there's no food, doesn't matter if the audience doesn't like you, you just do it. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um I wrote that whole experience about that whole thing. You know, that mindset. I've been doing it a long time wanting to stop. What was interesting is that some women my age, musicians, wrote me privately and said, I feel exactly the same way. Thank you. Thanks for writing that. How I feel now? Um, well, I'm about to go back on the road November 5th, and I'm nervous about it. I'm not 25. Um I don't have, I feel like, man, I've got to work up my stamina to do it again because, you know, it's grueling. And um, and yet at the same time, like you were just talking about the gift that goes both ways. I know people are waiting for this, like they need it. And I probably need it, too. Yeah, I, it's I, I, it resonated so much with me. And I talked, I spoke to other musicians because I shared it with friends of mine and we all felt the same way that um, in in so many ways, it was well-timed, the hiatus. I know for me, I've got two teenagers at home and I didn't realize until I was really home how much my absences cost them. Right. Oh God, talk about moving into the pain, right? That's painful. I mean, my son has grown, so he didn't feel like that, but yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny. So it, it, so it so resonated with me and, but now I've speaking to uh, other folks that do what we do now that we're somewhat able to go back. Like I'm, I'm nervous about going back. I don't know. Yeah. You don't know what I just, I don't know if I'll be able to, because, okay, so you, you described your, your, this long life of going, and you and I both know the worst person to be on tour with is someone who's complaining all the time. Sure. 
Yeah, because you just got to do it. Just come on. You got to do it. Suck it up, man. <laughs> it doesn't make it any better to complain. If In, in fact, it makes it worse. So I don't want to be out there and, and complain. And I, um, but I don't, it's hard to know, like, how can I feed my kids without doing this thing that I do? And, and I don't want to be ungrateful because there's so many, there's so many people that I know that wish they could go out and get the guarantees, for instance, that I get. So I don't know. I, it's all questions at the moment. I, I hear you. Uh, there's this like combination of gratitude and doubt and knowing you're fortunate. I know I'm fortunate. And yet I see at my age that there's a change coming in my life that I'm not going to be able to continue doing that. I mean, okay, Mavis Staples does it <laughs> and Tony Bennett does it, but you know, I'm not then I actually, um, did you read this thing that Adele said, like she really hates touring and she's not going to tour. So she's doing a residency in Las Vegas or something. And I, I was just so like relieved that somebody said it out loud. And you're right. When you get on the road, you can't complain. Like I've never heard any guy in my band complain one time. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't get invited back. That's the, I mean, if, no. you, if, if you're the kind of, yeah, because that's, that's a, a, that's a, that's a problem when you're out on the road with people. Well, okay. I take it back and I'm going to name him <laughs> Zev Katz. <laughs> we call him. <laughs> no, he actually named himself this, the cranky traveler. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll complain, but he does it with humor. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes that's their persona. And then it's yeah. nice to sort of have somebody that's the like the Greek chorus who's able yeah. to just say the what you yeah. all wish you could say. Yeah, the food sucks and it's you know, 7 a.m. lobby call and on and on. Have you considered doing something like that, like uh the Carlisle or something where you know every other Friday and no? No, although I did. I've done several residencies, one at SF Jazz, mm -hmm. which is you, you just set up there for a week at SF Jazz. It's fantastic. Um, and then at some universities, residencies and um, uh, University of Iowa was like three or four days, really fun. So those things appeal to me because you don't have to travel every day, you know. The Carlisle, no, that probably doesn't fit me. That's but too little. Yeah, and well, not too little. It's just that I, I don't. It's a mismatch. But wouldn't that be great if there was like a venue you could just stay in for a month that wasn't Las Vegas? <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Like the Rubin Museum, I know you're. You would kill. You're great there. I did 13 shows for them. Yeah, I loved it. But that's a tiny, tiny room. It's yeah, a special, it's a special thing. Yeah, the boy. If, for the listeners who don't know, that's a room where they don't have amplification. You just go nope. and sing. It's crazy, yep. crazy. <laughs> oh, it scared me to death when I first did it. You know, the microphone is a fourth wall, and yes. to just sing out into a room of an audience, it's like, well, you know, Olivier did it, I guess. Not singing, but. <laughs> Oh, Rose, I think this is so sweet. And I really appreciate you checking back in with me. And I, it's funny how a hundred episodes into this, the conversation is 
so much like the one you and I had in the very first episode. And so many of the things that you brought up in that episode resonate in episode after conversation after conversation. The idea of who am I? Why do I do this? Um, the idea of service. And um, I feel like the life that you live, the way you have balanced being a creative person who makes you know, deeply personal music that's accessible to a wider audience, but also the 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 way you examine your own life and your mm-hmm. not just your music, but in your writing and your memoir and and uh, your essays. I think that you are you're in a way you're the ultimate guest for me because you're living the examined life of the very creative person. Thank you so much for joining me again. You are talking about yourself too, my friend. <laughs> you know that. You know Thank that. You. Thank you. I just love you to death, Rhett. Thanks for inviting me back. Oh, Rose. Well, for number 200, I'll book you now. (laughs) Okay. I'm in. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.